From NPR News, this is Foreign Dispatch, a weekly roundup of some of the best coverage of news and events filed by NPR's correspondents from around the globe. I'm Rebecca Hersher. This week, Greek authorities crack down on the neo-fascist party Golden Dawn. A new law in China requires adults to visit and look after their aging parents and a museum for what's left over when relationships fail. In Greece, the lawmaker who leads the neo-fascist Golden Dawn Party is behind bars awaiting trial, along with more than 30 members of his party. Many Greeks are happy to see him punished. His views are racist and anti-Semitic, and he's blamed for inciting violence, especially against immigrants. He says he's not a criminal and is being persecuted for his beliefs. Joanna Kakissis reports from Athens. When Nikolaos Michaloliakos arrived in court late Wednesday night, hundreds of his supporters were waiting for him. Blood, honor, golden dawn, they chanted. The motto comes from Nazi Germany's Hitler Youth, but these true believers waved Greek flags. This crowd helped the once marginal party win nearly 7% of the vote last year, when Michaloliakos compared himself to Julius Caesar after the polls closed. I came, I saw. I conquered. You slung mud at me. You defamed me. You silenced me. I defeated you. And Mihaloliako says he will keep fighting, even though he's now in jail at a high-security prison near the port of Piraeus. A date for his trial has not been set. Victory, victory, he shouted as he left the court in handcuffs early today. He's accused of running Golden Dawn like a Nazi-style gang, training hit squads and ordering murders and assaults. Political scientist Nikos Marantzidis says the more than 400,000 people who voted for Golden Dawn will now see what the party really does. The majority of the voters of Golden Dawn, until now, they didn't believe that the leadership of the organization were uh, some criminal persons. For them, they were some people with strong nationalists or other ideas, and of course, first of all, with anti-systemic behaviors. But their anti-system ideas are often combined with anti-immigrant hatred. Abu Hamed Dahi is an Egyptian fisherman. He's been afraid of Greeks since a gang of men broke into his home last year and nearly beat one of his housemates to death. Now, if anyone passes me and stares, the truth is, I am afraid. When a car full of people slows down behind me, I am afraid. Golden Dawn members say immigrants are subhuman and say Greece should be cleaned of them. But this kind of language could be punished if hate crime legislation in parliament becomes law, says criminal lawyer Tanya Dionisopoulou. And these law proposals refer to punishing publicly, instigating hatred or violent acts against persons or group of persons because of their race, uh, religion, Uh, national origin, uh, sexual orientation, or sex. But no such law would have protected Greek rapper Pavlos Fisas, who was allegedly killed by a Golden Dawn member last month. His death sparked the crackdown on the party. 
For NPR News, I'm Joanna Kikissis in Athens. There was a time when Confucian respect for the elderly was the norm in China. But now the country has the world's largest aging population, and the Chinese government felt it necessary to enact a law that requires adults to visit their elderly parents and look after their needs. Cases of parents suing their deadbeat kids for emotional support have gotten a heavy play in Chinese media. NPR's Anthony Kuhn has the story. Lay Buddhists are chanting to ease the passage of a recently departed soul at the Songtang Hospice, the first private facility of its kind in Beijing. When I first visited this place nearly two decades ago, the average patient stayed just 18 days. Now it caters to people who are not terminally ill, and the average stay is about five years. To understand how people are coping with the task of caring for their aging parents, I sat down with Huang Xuebing at his mother's bedside. His mother's been here for around five years, and her health is declining. Mr. Huang visits her here every day, but he still blames himself for not taking better care of her. In China, when you take care of a parent, you take care of him or her in your home, and you take care of them until they die. We call this filial piety. If you put a parent in an old age home, many people consider this unfilial, but we have no choice. Wang says he tried to take care of his mother at home, but the caregivers he hired all quit. He admits he's struggling to reconcile his obligations to his mom versus those to society. I come here every day, but I have to take time out from work for it. When I come here to sit by her bedside and look after her every day, that means I haven't contributed to society in any other way, right? The challenge of caring for China's elderly is fairly obvious if you look at the demographics. As of last year, China had about eight working-age people for every senior citizen. By mid-century, there will only be two people supporting each senior. This is because people are living longer and they're having fewer children, in part because of China's one-child policy. Next, I spoke to a cheerful-looking 94-year-old retired teacher named Lian Yicheng. She says her daughter just visits her twice a month, and that's just fine by her. If there is nothing wrong, I won't ask her to come over. It's a three-hour round trip for her, so a visit takes up half a day. I tell her, I'm fine, I'm alive and kicking. What's there to come over and see? She was separated from her children first during World War II and again during the chaos of the Cultural Revolution in the 1960s. So she got used to fending for herself. She believes that how each person looks after his or her parents is a matter of individual character. It's not something you can regulate by law. It's something you have to cultivate gradually. You can't force it. My daughter has her work and her own activities. She can't live in the past according to the feudal thinking and Confucian ways of my generation. In the past, many Chinese learned respect for the elderly from a 13th century collection of stories about 24 examples of filial piety. This is an animated version of it on the Internet. One example is a man named Guo Ju, who was so poor he couldn't afford enough food for his elderly mother and young son. So he decided to bury his son alive in his backyard. 
He could always have more children later, he reasoned, but he could never have another mom. A century ago, this interpretation of Confucianism was already being criticized as inhumane. Li Wei is the founder of the Songtang Hospice. He says it's not realistic to expect parents to sue their children for emotional support, and this is why there have been so few cases going to court. An 80-year-old who is no longer independent, how can they go sue someone in court? It has never happened because our citizens don't have a history of being litigious. He argues that the problem of caring for the elderly is mainly an economic one. He says that most of the people who bring their parents to his hospice are not unfilial. The ones who are really unfilial are those who put their old folks in a coffin made of four concrete walls. They go off to do their work and leave the old person all alone and lonely. This kind of thing happens all the time. Li knows a thing or two about caring for the elderly. Since he founded Songtang more than two decades ago, he's seen off more than 10,000 patients from his hospice. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Beijing. Coming up, the aftermath of a horrific terrorist attack in Kenya. The Vietnamese general who drove first the French and then the Americans from his country and a museum in Croatia that's unlike any other. A week after Islamic militants stormed an upscale mall in Nairobi, Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta vowed to set up a commission of inquiry to look into Kenya's lapses in intelligence and security. At least 67 people died in the four-day siege that ended with dozens still unaccounted for. NPR's Gregory Warner looks at the questions still lingering. Kareem and his employees are sorting through the shoes and the shirts they collected from the men's clothing store he manages at Westgate. He's visibly shaken from his trip back to the mall that he escaped under gunfire. He asked that I not use his last name because he didn't have permission from the shop owner to speak. All, these are all damages here. Wow, there's a bullet hole in the... Uh... In the suit. Yeah. These are waste now. Even if it is small hole, it's waste. There is, Kareem says, no insurance for a terrorist attack. And some of his most expensive suits and shoes are missing. Other shop owners reported Rolex watches and diamond jewelry and mobile phones looted, allegedly by Kenyan soldiers during the four-day fight against the terrorists. The allegations have shaken people in Nairobi who were just last week hailing the soldiers as heroes. We wish to affirm that the government takes very seriously the allegations of looting. At a press conference, Interior Minister Joseph Olelenku was on the defensive, and not just about what his soldiers allegedly did during those four days in the mall, but what they didn't. A leaked intelligence report indicates that security chiefs and cabinet ministers were warned about Westgate as a terrorist target and even warned of one likely mode of attack where operatives, quote, storm the buildings with guns and grenades. But soldiers seem woefully unprepared for that event. Minister Lenku said only, With regard to the issue of our information and our intelligence, that is our business. But maybe the most sensitive questions still lingering in this shaken city are about how the fight was waged, why it took the Kenyan army four days to kill five militants, and what happened to the other five to ten terrorists. Kweya Obedi is the Nairobi County Director of the Red Cross. He was leading a team of volunteers that rushed in that first day to rescue people from where they hid inside shops. 
And even by that point, he says, this was some hours after the initial assault, the terrorists had mostly been pushed back. The police had had better control of, of the situation. This was a special Israeli-trained unit of the police called the Reke Group, experienced in hostage rescue. Because at the time they were trying to push, 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 push. Push the militants back so the people could be freed. But then a commander of the special unit was killed, reportedly by friendly fire. And the special police were sent out to guard the perimeter while the Kenyan military took over the operation. That, business owners say, is when they believe the looting took place. It's still unclear why Kenya's poorly paid military took over the situation when the special police were sent outside. But several people familiar with the operation say that's when the pace of the attack slowed. By 10.30 that night, the situation had gone from a full-court press on the gunman to a siege or standoff that would stretch on for another three days. George Musamili is a retired officer who now runs a Kenyan security company. I reached him by cell phone over Skype as he was outside Nairobi. When the military came in, there was no proper plan for takeover that allowed the terrorists to regroup. He criticized the military for allowing terrorists to regroup and rearm. And he and others said the military declined to fight at night, which might have allowed the terrorists to hunt and kill more people in their hiding places. Now Kenya's president has declared a commission of inquiry to investigate these security lapses. But Musamili says in Kenya, commissions are always seen as ways to evade the problem. In Kenya, we've seen these kind of inquiries happening, but uh, we've never seen the results of this. The challenge for Kenya's controversial president, who next month goes on trial in The Hague for allegedly instigating tribal violence in the 2007 election, is not to be seen to favor a military elite that's dominated by his own tribe. The general who helped end French colonial rule in Vietnam and later drove the Americans out has died. Vo Win Jop was 102. He famously surprised and overwhelmed French troops at Dien Bien Phu. Later, in 1968, Jop led the Tet Offensive against U.S. forces, catching American commanders and the American public by surprise. After Tet, many Americans wondered if victory in Vietnam was even possible. Michael Sullivan has this look back at a man considered one of history's greatest military tacticians. Pham Tang Dum is a former artilleryman and political commissar who would have followed General Jop anywhere. He was with the young Jap early on as he fought against the French and later against the Americans. He ordered, we followed. No matter how great the obstacle or the hardship, General Zap had no training in military matters. Yet, he fought and won against the French and the Americans. Cecil Curry is a retired professor of military history whose biography of Jap is called Victory at Any Cost. He stands with the great giants of military leadership back 2,000 years. Jop's biggest victory was against the French at Dien Bien Phu in 1954. The French general Henri Navarre confident that Jop would never be able to drag artillery up the steep mountains that surrounded the isolated French base near the border with Laos. Navarre was wrong. By the time the battle actually began, Jop had far more guns and men than the French. Many of the guns, U.S. weapons, captured by the Chinese during the Korean War. He relied on the lag in French intelligence so that by the time that Navarre realized 
that Yen Bien Phu was surrounded and that it was too late. Ted Morgan is the author of Valley of Death, the story of Dien Bien Phu. He followed the very simple Clausewitz formula, superior forces, superior armament, and the will to win. The French defeat at Dien Bien Phu spelled the end of French colonialism in Southeast Asia, a bittersweet moment for General Jop, who, during the years of French occupation, lost his father, wife, and sister, all of whom died in French prisons. But Jop was not known for being sentimental. Some critics say he sacrificed his troops indiscriminately to achieve victory. Others say he was more concerned about his soldiers than he led on. I think both are true. Biographer Cecil Curry. He said at some point everyone has to die, and it's better for people to die for a cause than to die willy-nilly. At the same time, he had an R&R team out in the field giving the men a respite against that 55 days of horror. There would be no respite for the French nor for the Americans more than a decade after Dien Bien Phu. General Jop, the architect of the 1968 Tet Offensive, which shocked U.S. military commanders and eroded American support for the Vietnam War back home. After the communist victory in 1975, General Jop remained active in government, but fell out of favor in the late 80s and spent several decades in the political wilderness. In the past few years, however, he began speaking out forcefully, as always, against what he saw as new threats to his country. Well, General Bogdan Zapp will be remembered for his recent advocacy on the bauxite mining, raising environmental issues, relations with China. Carl Thayer, a Vietnam watcher at the Australian Defense Forces Academy, says bauxite mines now under construction in Vietnam, built by China, have angered both environmentalists and nationalists who view China with suspicion, among them retired General Jap. And he'll also be known for his lesser-known interventions in letters to the senior leadership, bitterly criticizing the role of military intelligence in providing information that could be used to suppress domestic dissent and also really arguing that the party needed to open up and its procedures should be more democratic. So he'll be seen as a kind of retired Mandarin who is able to offer advice without anything to gain by it because mortality faced him when he made these statements. And this will be seen as acting in a highly moral and ethical fashion in Vietnamese culture. A warrior and a patriot to the end. NPR's correspondent in Afghanistan, Sean Carberry, recently vacationed in Croatia. He sent this postcard about his visit to a rather strange museum in Zagreb. I confess I'm not much of a museum tourist. Here in Zagreb, I've already bypassed a number of arts and culture and history museums, but I've just stumbled across one museum that's far too unusual to pass up. It's called the Museum of Broken Relationships. I'm Dražen Grubišić. I'm a co-author and co-owner of a Museum of Broken Relationships. It's a collection of objects donated by people who have broken up. Each item has accompanying uh, story. The idea came out of his breakup with Olinka Vichtica, who's the museum's co-founder. As they were splitting, they couldn't decide who should take possession of a toy bunny they shared. They decided why not create an art project to display the bunny. They reached out to friends who donated items that were symbolic of their broken relationships. The initial temporary display was such a success that they traveled the world doing exhibitions. In 2010, they set up the permanent museum in Zagreb. 
For me, the art in this is the way we display the stories. You know, you start with the pretty funny ones, you know, then you go down, then you go really deep down, and then you go up again. And so that this roller coaster of emotions, that's actually what we play with. The first room is about casual or distance relationships that don't work out. The next room is, uh, we call it Whims of Desire, and it's about the objects that are left from this first phase of relationship when you're rolling to each other, and so it's pretty sexual stuff. Like garter belts and furry handcuffs. And then uh, after that comes uh, Rage and Fury, and here we have items that are mostly torn and broken. For example, there's a car mirror on display. A woman broke it off her boyfriend's car when she saw it parked in front of another woman's house. The next room is about relationships that end in death. That room is followed by one called the rites of passage. It's the, the things about weddings, uh, some wedding gifts, uh, albums. Uh. An iron that was used to, what does it say? This iron was used to iron my wedding suit. Now it's the only thing left. Yeah, so I guess the marriage didn't last long. <laughs> but the museum just might help some relationships last longer. It's nice to see couples, you know, they walk in like a bit um, in a distance. They always go out like hugging and something, like holding each other. Like, okay, this should not happen to us. On the way out, people pass Nikolina Vulich, who's been events manager at the museum for three years. Some people are smiling when I'm coming outside. And in some people you can see, like, they're thinking about themselves and they're really, like, a little bit confused when they're coming out. And you can see also tears in the eyes. Do you ever feel a little bit like a therapist? Do some people on the way out just want to talk to you? They want to share things? This is, like, normal thing for us. But mostly people are, are joking about it, so... So you never have to... Hug sometimes, someone who's sometimes crying. Sometimes we're hugging, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the part of the job. <laughs> Nikolina Vulich, events manager at the Museum of Broken Relationships. Sean Carberry, NPR News. For more international coverage, you can listen to your local NPR station. You'll find a list at our website, npr.org. And while you're there, you can find many more international stories by clicking on News and World. For NPR News, I'm Rebecca Hersher.